From Heterodox Academy, this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Conversations with scholars and authors, ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. In 2016, Jonathan Haidt gave a talk at a number of American universities in which he made the provocative argument that universities must choose either truth or social justice as their primary motive for operating. He argued that universities used to be centered around truth and that going forward some universities could continue to do that, whereas others could be frank about declaring social justice to be their primary motive. He did not argue that students couldn't pursue social justice at a university, but simply that the university itself had to choose one primary goal. Today I'm talking to Chad Wellman, an expert on the history of universities, about whether universities truly were motivated by the pursuit of truth, or whether history is in fact more complicated. I've known Chad since 1995, when he and I were classmates at Davidson College and in some of the same humanities courses. Chad's now an associate professor of German studies at the University of Virginia. His most recent book was Organizing Enlightenment, about the foundation of the modern research university. He's also the co-author of the upcoming book Permanent Crisis, The Humanities in a Disenchanted Age. So we're here to talk about your recent essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education, in which you respond to Jonathan Haidt's assertion that the university must have one purpose, truth or social justice. You've pointed out in several of your writings that universities have actually always been divided between several purposes. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. I think my my point was basically a historical one, and that's simply to say that universities have never had just one purpose. They've always pursued multiple and some could even say, I think, competing purposes or ends, you know, whether that's the attempt to maintain church doctrine or educate clergy, the attempt to form democratic citizens, produce economic value, to create and transmit knowledge, or quite simply just to maintain culture and class. I think uh, various universities um, across time and space have pursued multiple ends. Now, that's not to say, and I think this is important, and this is where I think um, the claim that universities have historically pursued something like truth, um, you know, there's a certain very important truth to that. But I would put it something more like this. This thing called the university, this social institution has historically what distinguishes a university from, say, just a factory uh, or a court um, or even historically a library or a lab is that they have been bound up with creating knowledge um, and educating people. And those two functions have uh, worked together in different ways. And of course, what it means to create knowledge uh, to educate people varies historically and culturally as well. My main pushback um, in this notion that you know universities have to choose between uh, two different teloi, two different purposes, I think that really underestimates the the complexity, but also the resilience and variety um, that universities have displayed over the past centuries. So when the university was being run by clergy, why wasn't there a unified purpose at the time? Take, for example, the university, 13th century Paris. Um, it's even it's not even really accurate to say they were run by clergy. I mean, they really were. These were corporate institutions. Think of them more along the lines of guilds. I mean, that's what these early, early modern universities were. They were corporations of students and scholars who, who were bound together for their own internal purposes. 
And one of those was to train future clergy. They were given license, uh, basically in very formal ways, um, by the church, but also crucially by the state. So universities have historically functioned as not fully autonomous, but strangely autonomous institutions. And you can see that this weird kind of social space that they have always occupied or traditionally occupied opens them up to competing interest and competing pursuits. So when you're talking, say, again, about 13th century Paris, you have very explicit state interests, but you also have very explicit church interest, and you also have very distinct internal interest, right? So you have the the students and scholars pursuing their own ends, and of course, their notorious battles, even internally, um, between, say, students and scholars, you know, such that entire universities, you know, students will get up and try to leave in Jena, uh, at, at, at a German university earlier in the 18th century. Um, there were tensions, and uh, they tried. Jena tried to move after uh, problems with local civil civil authorities. So even internally, these tensions, you know, bubble up and become pretty acute sometimes. And then they're of course repeated um, externally as well. So again, that's just you know this notion that the university ch- pursues one purpose under undersells that. And I think there's a real in terms of how this history affects today, if we don't understand the complexities internally and externally of the different groups that universities are trying to appease or the different ends that universities are pursuing, then we're missing something important. And your book, Organizing Enlightenment, is about the foundation of the modern research university in Germany. At the time the modern research university was founded, was there at least briefly a period when there was some collective purpose? <laughs> uh, no, it's short. Uh, I think it was it was ideal, right? It was very normative. So, over the course, you know, by the early modern period into the 18th century, by and large, universities were almost second rate institutions, right? Right. The real, um, the real knowledge production, the new forms of knowledge, especially with regards to the emerging natural sciences. Those are really taking place in a host of other institutions um, like uh, salons and academies and in odd ways, even libraries. So universities up through the 18th century were kind of secondary institutions um, in that regard. But something very interesting uh, began to happen, especially in German universities over the course of the 18th century. And that is this much closer relationship between universities and the state so you have something like the University of Göttingen founded in the 1730s. And, you know, and I think you really could argue that there was a coherent purpose um, to a university uh, like Göttingen. And that was it was a mercantilist institution. It served to make money uh, for the state coffers. By and large, 18th century, these Enlightenment factories, as they were called, uh, did have a coherent uh, kind of organizing purpose. And they were closely bound up with a state. And that out of this institution kind of emerges the research university. And that was that that book was about the emergence over the course of the late 18th, early 19th century. The university with which I think most of us are familiar with uh, this kind of the R1, as we call them, uh, right, in the in the United States. But these institutions which are devoted to creating and transmitting knowledge and, and but in a very particular way. And so. Uh, in the first half of the 19th century, 
you could argue that the research university emerges as a distinct ideal um, that tries to give a clear purpose and a clear focus to what universities do, but just as importantly, what distinguishes these institutions from, you know, the rise of more complicated public spheres and other ways of creating and transmitting knowledge, especially wrapped up with newer technologies like print. And when it comes to educating students in terms of their moral character, you've written about that as well and how the American university, this peculiar thing happened where that uh, duty got shifted to extracurricular organizations, which is why people from Europe and, and Asia, people like myself, when they come to the American university, tend to be surprised by the amount of extracurricular activity there is. How did that shift happen? How did uh, moral character building get outsourced in that way at the American university? Yeah, so I think um, so. The the research university the the, the model is a, is adopted and adapted um, in the United States, kind of in the final decades of the nineteenth century, in large part from kind of German uh, models, but really transformed. Uh, you know, once they came uh, to the U.S. in the the late nineteenth century. And um, but as universities like Johns Hopkins and Stanford and Chicago, these newer universities, but even but also, you know, established universities, especially Harvard um, and then with the Morrill Act, uh, state universities, um, when they began to adopt these this this research model, you know, universities about are about producing research that really began to put another alternative about what higher education could be over and against what had long been the case um, in the American context, which was basically the classical college, right? This collegiate model, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, that had been around for centuries in which you had a fixed curriculum, you had daily chapel, uh, you had a college president who was also clergy of, of, of some sort, the capstone course that everybody would take and that would usually be taught by the uh, college president um, was something like a moral theology course. And this capstone course kind of embodied what this classical American college was. It was a, a cumulative course that brought together more, you know, questions about truth, uh, questions about morals and questions about religion into one coherent you know, uh, seminar. And the research university model put all kinds of pressure on that. So there was an implicit understanding at the time that if you were attending a university, you were a Christian. Absolutely. At least for these American colleges, they were explicitly, although very broadly, Protestant, right? So it was a, it was a white male, largely East Coast, actually, kind of uh, underlying Protestant culture. And the it would... It, the question of confessionalism was was one that riled and um, you know the, univer- the American colleges for for, for decades, uh, but the broad kind of background culture was absolutely um, you know this elite Protestant, uh, vaguely Protestant culture, and that gave kind of the cultural the shared cultural foundations for things like chapel, for things like shared norms, for th- things like a shared moral code. Um, and that really allowed for this um, set curriculum in American colleges. And that starts to, you know, starts to dissolve and face all kinds of pressures by the end of the 19th century. The United States, obviously, being a nation of immigrants, started to have much more religious diversity than nations like England and France and Italy. 
Right. Right. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that, and, and then you also, you have, um, uh, increasingly, especially with the first half of the 20th century, the admission of women, uh, the admission of Jews, um, and then slowly, very slowly, um, as kind of racial segregation, um, is, is challenged both in the courts, uh, and, and by even internally by uh, students and, and some faculty, um, you have an influx of, of new of new populations of new of new groups of people who had traditionally been shut out, or as that was the case um, here at the University of Virginia, um, you know, enslaved peoples who built the university um, slowly and gradually over decades and decades and decades finally get. Um, access to these institutions of higher education and with all of this right so on the one hand you could look at this the american college this fixed curriculum um as a bastion of coherence and moral community um but it's a very very you know it's, it's one that's explicitly white explicitly protestant and explicitly elite and which excludes uh most people and once those barriers start to, to come down, then you have basically a century of attempts um, to try to, uh, on the part of these institutions, many of them trying to recover some sense of coherence, some sense of unity, some sense of, of integrity. And, you know, these, you know, show up in debates, which we're very familiar with, but perhaps in a, from a different frame, debates about um, Western civilization, debates about the canon, uh, debates about the humanities, debates about general education. And I see all of, you know, today, so many of the issues that, that, that Haidt, for example, discusses. For me, you can't talk about these issues on campus without talking about um, this very long history of attempts to figure out what might bind uh, universities together and colleges together and give them some sense of of coherence. And this comes directly back, um, and, I'll, and I'll stop right there, but maybe we can go back to it. The question, um, the other thing I see is the institutional shift um, that came to mark American universities and colleges over the course of the 20th century. And it's this massive chasm that developed between curricular and extracurricular institutions or, you know, this extracurricular curricular divide that came to characterize the American university over the course of the 20th century. So how successful do you think extracurricular activities have been at building moral character? <laughs> well, well, uh, not very, um, you know, in, at least in, in, in any kind of coherent sense, right? Um, if you think of, I mean, moral character as, you know, to quote kind of 18th, uh, 19th century theories, the, the harmonious development of faculties or capacities, uh, you know, not vary. Um, but I, I would I would say my my concern, you know, do I think it, they were successful? They were successful in certain ways, you know, so take uh, a place like, again, I'll just use UVA, University of Virginia. Um, we have, you know, this very long history of student uh, of student run, almost autonomous, uh, student life here in which students take very seriously. Um, they run massive numbers of organizations. They do kind of incredible things both here on, on campus, but also throughout the community. But what, what happened, um, over the course of the 20th century is, you know, as the classical American college kind of was overtaken by the research university, 
at the beginning of the century, there was a great anxiety that among kind of university administrators in particular, that undergraduate education was just being marginalized, right? And that was always the focus of American colleges, those, those uh, four years of undergraduate education. They were losing funds, but also attention and also thought uh, to graduate education and professional schools, right? Th this is what's getting, you know, all the attention, the concerns go. And there's kind of this no man's land for a number of decades. And then there's a kind of a renewed attention uh, beginning kind of the 1920s and 1930s um, when you have, you know, most people think, you know, the Harvard, Yale, Princeton college house system you know, goes back centuries, but it's actually from the late 20s and 1930s. And those were explicit attempts to refocus those institutions um, on undergraduate education, right, to give a, a certain coherence about it. And so you have these massive investments of funds and energies um, and fundraising to build back up undergraduate education and try to recover some sense of uh, a coherent undergraduate uh, experience. But what happens is this energy uh, most of it comes from administrators. Most of it comes from, you know, well-meaning donors as well. Um, they end up building up this entire para-institution at American colleges and universities. And it's what we call, you know, extracurricular life, or you call it the office of the dean of students, uh, counseling centers, um, big-time college sports. I mean, this is when the, the first big stadiums um, are, are getting built. Um, this is when you have the career services center. You have this entire infrastructure, which if you spend any time on an American college or university, you're very familiar with. So you have this entire secondary institution built up and basically its mission, like what it takes as its self-understanding is the cultivation and development of something like moral character. And then don't forget, although this is often what has happened, you still have a curriculum and a faculty kind of across campus doing what they've always done. And this is the period where you find universities trying to defend Western civilization and Western values where you see the invention of the humanities course at Columbia University to assimilate new immigrants. Right. And so you, you could you, you could say, so, so this is, you have this extracurricular buildup, the secondary institution buildup, and you still have certain pockets of faculty who are still interested in undergraduate education, right? Um, for many faculty, I would, I would argue even obviously till today, that all of this whole extracurricular business comes as a as a, as a giant relief, right? I mean, if you don't have to worry about your students' souls, then you can, you're can you going to have more time to write. Especially if you want NSF grants. Yeah, no, no, exactly, right? I mean, if you, you know, if you don't have to eat with your students and, you know, constantly read with them and reflect on them, uh, not just in classroom and lab time, but, you know, over the evenings and walk around with them on campus, you're going to have a lot more time to do research, um, whatever that might be. Uh, but there are pockets of faculty members who, for varying reasons, uh, try to recover something of that coherence, you know, that they imagined that the classical American college provided. And I would say things like, you know, the Columbia humanities sequence, all of the general education programs, which none of them emerged until, right, they start showing up in the 1920s and, and, and 1930s, Chicago's core. Um, those are all efforts by faculty to you know, depending on, you know, which figures we're talking about, trying to take back or recover 
something that they felt was lost and, 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 and in a sense, something that they felt responsible for, right? Something like a whole education of a student. And also these were basically anti-fascist courses. Oh, well, yeah. The first one, yeah. Well, the, yeah, the first ones, you know, so the Columbia course, you know, started out as the War Aims course, right? The one you, I think, initially mentioned. This was uh, at the very, the final years of World War One, and it kind of spilled on after, and they were defending America's decision to get involved um, in the war. And these courses were all, you know, from the beginning, yeah, they laid claim to, you know, there is a coherent culture, there is a coherent civilization that we want to defend over against fascism, totalitarianism. Another key point and time frame in this is uh, the late 30s and uh, 1940s. We could even call them the first Antifa. Oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it might be, yeah, it might be true. And, uh, but then you also have a resurgence of them in, in the Cold War in, in a lot of ways, right? So it's this external enemy and other that can help define a culture and a civilization were crucial to the emergence of the humanities as, the, as an institutional project of general education as an institutional um, project. And these are always, again and again, it revolves around coherence, integrity, harmony, you know, where moral character is a, is, is a stand-in for, for all of that. And, you know, f- humanities, you know, lit professors might not use moral character today, but they're going to have other words for it, right? I mean, they're going to have uh, different stand-ins for that attempt to recover. Can you talk about what you think extracurricular life at American universities is now doing? Yeah, it's its own institution, right? Um, these, you know, so you hear the complaints about, you know, lazy rivers and climbing walls and buffets, but that that really, I think, obscures on the one hand the real richness of this extracurricular life, right? The real, um, the real value that all of these uh, extracurricular programs have have brought in, you know. So, for example, here at the University of Virginia, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm what's called principal of Brown College, which is UVA's oldest residential college. You know, my students stay; they live in dorms for four years. I live on grounds with my family with them. And so I guess you could say um, that that's extracurricular, right? I don't, there aren't classes that I teach, um, but there's some, some amazing stuff uh, that, that, that goes on there. We eat with them. You know, I lead a science fiction reading group, you know, something that I'm explicitly not an expert in, but they come to my house and we, we read and, um, you know, uh, we, it, it looks like a, a relaxed classroom. But what has happened is, is again, as I mentioned earlier, is this is created in general. That's kind of an exception. You know, my role as, as, a, as a residential college principal is kind of an exception. Otherwise, faculty do their things and an entire professional army, they are the ones who look over the succor and the care and the moral development of our undergraduates. And for the most part, they are amazing and incredible people who I... Uh, from personal experience can attest to the fact that they are indefatigable in their work and they keep, they have kept several students alive, just basically alive, but they do that from across campus, right? They do that with very little relationship to what happens in the seminars, the courses and the labs and the curricula that faculty lead. So you have two separate institutions, one charged with kind of the moral care of character of, of our students and the other charged with kind of the intellectual life of our students. And 
that is a unique development and kind of the history of, of universities that these should be so bifurcated. Um, and I think that's a, I think that's a real problem that, that this, this sharp divide, uh, between an intellectual life, a life of the mind and the life of, 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 of a moral, of a moral character and a moral life. And you've written about Teresa Sullivan. Uh, she was the president of, the, of UVA during the time of the uh, neo-Nazi march. You've written about her response and how you felt it was inadequate because there was a lack of moral clarity. She, for some reason, did not explicitly name white supremacy as the ideology that motivated this neo-Nazi march. Um, why do you think this is happening at the administrative level? So my my initial response to that was sharply critical, you know, uh, of of President Sullivan and her initial reluctance to, you know, to name the white supremacists uh, who marched across grounds. And then I, then I began to qualify that. Then I said, well, you know, what what should I expect? Uh, what should any of us expect from a university president? Because university president, you know, she isn't, you know, like one of those nineteenth century college presidents who taught. Uh, a moral theology seminar to all of the fourth year uh, students that try to bring everything together. She runs a massive corporation, right? Uh, she runs a you know a, a, a massive international corporation, uh, you know, more in excess of three billion dollar annual budget, uh, an entire health uh, system with the the hospital and all of its um, adjunct facilities, an entertainment complex, um, a sustainability enterprise. Uh, an entire human resources division, a massive uh, investment firm. And so to compare and to even expect kind of a moral coherence or a coherence of purpose um, from a university president today, um, maybe, maybe is a bit, is a bit unfair or at least as, is what I started to think, or at least is, is not, uh, it's not being honest about what the university um, has long been, which is a much more complicated kind of international enterprise, at least kind of big kind of state R1 institutions uh, like the University of Virginia. And when it comes to students who are explicitly pursuing social justice, in your experience, um, do you feel like they're pursuing it in a way that um, creates tension with the goal of truth finding? Sure. Yeah, I I, th I think so. Um, at least it 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 it's it's intention with the goal of truth finding, um, as as understood according to this vision of the university that no longer exists. Um, I mean, to you know, to be to be honest, in my experience, uh, like for example, here at, here at UVA, it's completely unsurprising that. Um, say what has been called, I think rather dismissively, um, kind of the social justice warriors, um, that they would appeal to bureaucratic processes, right? Be that disinvitations of speakers, uh, no platforming, because that's what they've been taught, right? They have been taught, um, we have taught them, faculty have taught them, um, that the place for questions about moral injury and desire and personal affront are to be submitted to a bureaucratic process, right? So these 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 questions about more injury are then transmuted into some object, say a complaint that has to flow through a depersonalized procedure that produces an outcome and then is adjudicated, right? That's very different from addressing these questions as questions of character, duty, moral insight, 
evil justice, you know, all the kinds of things that, um, I would hope <laughs> still on occasion you can address in seminars and classrooms. And so they're very adept at understanding what the system wants, be that AP courses and, uh, applying to colleges, you know, these, uh, these, especially these elite students, um, they're very adept at understanding what's expected of them and then providing that. And so what this bifurcation of curricular and extracurricular institutions has done, I think, has trained students, has formed students and faculty as well and staff as well to understand intellectual desires and moral desires as separate projects, as separate desires, right? So they know how to behave. They know how to comport themselves in a classroom. They know how to comport themselves within the bureaucracy. So do I think there are limitations to that in the actions uh, you know, of the, the, the students? Absolutely. But I would just as uh, vigorously want to say that um, they have been formed to do that. So in that sense, they're doing what they have been uh, trained to do. And quite frankly, I don't think the, inst the university has really any facility at this point um, to address that gap and to train them and, and, and teach them that there are other ways uh, to, to address these uh, issues. Quite a few people believe there was a stark change around 2012 when students became much more likely to vehemently ask for disinvitations. Do you have any idea what precipitated that? Um, I don't. Uh, well, I mean, I have ideas. You know, it's it's it's, it's a very tough question. Um, you know, one, I don't I don't know the data well enough to to really comment on whether uh, we can see proof or evidence for an increase in say, kind of disinvitation and 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 no platforming. Um, I would also say, you know, as we know, kind of with the Milo episodes, that uh, many of these campaigns, uh, these so called free speech campaigns, uh, were you know, highly orchestrated, I think, to produce a certain outcome um, and paid for to produce a certain outcome, right? So that I see it more as uh, perfor performance art. Um, you know, all, but that, all that said, right? So I don't, I wouldn't want to, you know, make this simply kind of a question to try to adjudicate whether disinvitation has increased or not increased. Because I would say, um, in my own experience here, and I think uh, research you know, that Height uh, summarizes well um, and addresses well, for example, um, the increase in anxiety and depression and suicide rates, um, not only in college students, right, but what I understand kind of extending over American adolescence has increased. But what I would say is this, is universities are more fundamentally ill-equipped, and this just returns to what we were talking to, to deal with these because all of these questions, unfortunately, are handled in a distinct one area of university life, and that's the extracurricular life, right? So if, if there is um, something like a persistent purpose among multiple and competing purposes, right? Something like, you know, Height calls it truth-seeking, I might call it, education and knowledge creation, if the university is going to distinguish itself and remain an institution that has an identifiable set of purposes um, that distinguishes it socially and that what it can do better and what society, I would quite frankly say, desperately needs right now, um, then it can't simply turn itself into another massive counseling centers uh, for 18 to 22 year olds, 
right? Um, it, it, it can't, it can't take on the burden, um, wholly, right. Of, of other public institutions as they crumble. Um, but what it can do, at least it has maybe historically, it has the resources, although right now, as I mentioned, I'm not very sanguine about it. What it can do is say, well, what we as university can do is address this differently, right? We can address this as an intellectual and as a moral matter. Um, and I think that's the really salient point of, of distinction for universities is that these questions, which are crucial not only to the well-being of our particular students, but also to the well-being and flourishing of our society, these are questions that can't be bifurcated into kind of intellectual and moral projects or political uh, and simply university projects. I mean, th these are common social problems and common social questions, and that's what universities have long done. In various ways, um, they've um, responded to and tried to help their societies, their cultures understand and better address the most pressing issues of the day. And if one of those is um, mental health or the question of well-being um, in a kind of a hyper uh, capitalist era, then I think that is something that an uh, extracurricular curricular model is not going to do very well. It is definitely a puzzle why 2012 was a turning point. Uh, we chatted about this offline, but I think you agree that positive psychology courses and happiness courses like the one I teach at Georgia Tech are a way to focus scholarly attention on depression and anxiety rather than outsourcing that to counseling services. And it helps students see sociological factors that might cause mental illness and prepare students to deal with difficulties in a way that other courses won't prepare them. So I think you, all the courses you just mentioned are examples of you know a strong desire on the part of students who you know seem to enroll heavily in courses like this um, to address not only as you were saying I think it's very important kind of historical sociological questions um, but also you know the philosophical and uh, re religious questions about what it what it means to you know to lead to lead a good life what it means uh, to lead a full life it provides consolation it provides critical distance it provides it can provide all you know all of these things um, to you know to think through with students how have different traditions religious philosophical political social understood happiness understood well-being right right well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Thanks for joining us on the show today. It's been great having you. Chris, thank you so much for the invitation. It was really fun. You can learn more about Chad at his blog, chadwellman.com. Wellman is spelled W-E-L-L-M-O-N. He's also on Twitter at C. Wellman. I hope you enjoyed the last episode with Kevin Cruz about fault lines. His co-author, Julian Zelizer, will be on an upcoming episode. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. And if you have any comments about today's episode, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or tag me on Twitter at chrismartin76. If you're an academic, you can also learn more about joining Heterodox Academy at heterodoxacademy.org. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org on Twitter at HDX Academy and on Facebook.